Hey everyone, welcome to Tales from the Pros, and this is Michael Giorgio, your host and co-founder of Imagine Ovation. My amazing guest here today is Chris Doe. Did I say that correct, Chris? You sure did. Good job. All right, thank you. Thank you. Um, Chris is actually an Emmy award-winning director, designer, strategist, and educator. He's the chief strategist and CEO of Blind, executive producer of The School, and the founder of The Future which is an online education platform that teaches the business of design to creative thinkers. His firm's work has been recognized by national and international organizations. Chris also speaks and lectures all around the world on the business of creativity. I'm sure many of you have seen his engaging and very insightful videos of, on YouTube, which we, me and my team have, and we completely love that. You know, it's awesome. You're doing great stuff. This is Tales from the Pros, where business leaders and influencers share their stories of inspiration, struggles, and successes. And I'm your host, Michael Giorgio. I'm, I'm super humbled to you know to have you on the show here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Michael. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Chris, just kind of keep you know get get the ball rolling here. How did you? start your design agency blind and the future, you know, tell us a little bit about your story and essentially how you got to, uh, got to where you are today. Sure. So right around the summer of 1995, I graduated from art center. I was thinking about my next moves and I, I wanted to really work with my good friend and somebody I really admired from art center. So my first job was working at epitaph records, right in the heyday of punk rock, uh, when the offspring was blowing up. And so I worked there for a brief period of time and didn't find that that was a good fit for me, that I didn't feel like I was getting to express the totality of my design education and experience and aesthetics only working on punk rock art. So I quit and moved on freelancing. And I got a call out of the blue from my uncle who asked me, do you want to start a design company? I know you've always <laughs> dreamt about starting something. And he was speaking just straight into my soul, into my heart. Of course, it jumped at the opportunity. So I met with him and his business partner uh, over dinner at the Weston Bonaventure in downtown Los Angeles. I submitted a business plan, pretty much a joke if you ask me, just looking back on it. I yeah. just put some numbers together and I got some advice from a friend whose father was an investment banker. I submitted it to him. He glanced at it and I had worked on it for days and he glanced at it and he said, I'm ready to make a commitment right now. I'm going to write you a check for $5,000. Let's get started. And I was thinking, oh my God, who does that over dinner? Who just hands you a check? And then that's how I kind of launched the, the agency. Wow. Now, what happened over time was they had many different diverse interests, business interests that pulled them away from wanting to do the design company with me because he was going to invest uh, in the company and send me work. So ultimately, we parted ways very amicably. Um, but then I got an a opportunity to start my own company. So, so Blind as a design firm was incorporated in December of 1995. That's cool. And you started the future after that, right? Yes, much, much after. The future started, it's only two and a half years old. Uh, okay. Before that, it was called The School, and I had a business partner. His name is Jose Caballer, and we worked on it together. I was a co-founder, executive producer of the content. He and I had different ideas about what we wanted to do, so we also parted amicably, and I restarted it as The Future. And So this is only now two and a half years old. Nice. And I know you have a, uh, you have a podcast as well, right? I've seen some mm -hmm. of the episodes. Yeah, we create a lot of content. So we have yeah. two channels on YouTube, The Future is Here and The Future Academy. 
And we also have a podcast. I write pretty frequently. I post things on Instagram and Twitter. We do lots of live streaming content. That's great. You know, I, I love your story, Chris, because um, it reminds me a little bit of me when we started Imagine Ovation about eight years ago. My brother-in-law, he's my business partner, who um, he actually just called me out of the blue one day and I was actually unemployed. I, I came back from my master's degree and I was unemployed for like seven months. Um, I was 23 at the time and he was like, hey man, um, do you want to start a tech company? And I'm like, uh, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I was unemployed. I had no other choice, right? So I was like, all right, let me get the experience and and let's see what happens. So I kind of just took the risk and thought, you know what? Worst comes to worst. You know, I have the experience of starting something, right? Um, and we just kind of went ahead and did it. And here I am eight years later. Pretty cool. Nice. Yeah, Sometimes man. It's just somebody kind of reaching out and pushing us and nudging us a little bit that gives us the courage to try. I know. I know. It's, and I'm sure you, you know, I know you deal with big brands, but I'm sure you've dealt with a lot of startups too. It's, it's, it's crazy because people feel, I, I know you being an entrepreneur, it's so much work, man. You know what I mean? It's people don't, they don't prepare you. The world doesn't prepare you of how much work it is to build a company. <laughs> um, and when you, uh, until you actually start doing it. And I've met so many, um, people that want to start a business. They're like, Oh man, like you're, you're probably living, living the life as a, as a business owner. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm like, it's a lot of work. You got to be prepared to put in a ton of work and make a lot of sacrifice. It's it's not easy. There's a high failure rate, so you got to be really uh, mentally prepared to to really just grind out. Right. People mostly look at the positives: being independent, self made, uh, being the boss, and having other people do the work, and reaping what they imagine to be all the rewards. But it's a ton of work. It's a lot of late nights, and you never have a day off if you think about it, because you're always thinking about what's next, what's next, how do I manage my payroll? How do I grow my team? How do I address Bobby's issue? How do I promote Mary, et cetera? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, 100% agree. So talking a little bit more about your agency blind, in your experience, Chris, what does it take to really grow, scale, and maintain an agency or even a company in general? Just any good tips and processes that work for you over the years? Yeah, once you realize your primary job and responsibility is sales and marketing and customer service, then you have the right mindset. Until then, you're really just a hobbyist trying to do design work while really living in that mindset of a glorified freelancer. You're an independent contractor, not really thinking about a business. Because the minute you start thinking like that, I need to grow sales. <clears throat> Excuse me. I need to grow sales. And the way to do that is to put myself out there to be visible, to make content to network and to land and close jobs essentially and then to hire and bring in the best most qualified people to do the work with me so that's a very different mindset so mm -hmm. if you start to understand that then all the creative people in the world are sitting there studying the wrong thing they're studying and practicing the craft and the making of things and they haven't learned much about business marketing and sales yeah. So it's, it's, so did you guys have, I mean, at blind, do you have a lot of speci um, more specific internal processes of, of like, for example, how to pitch to a, uh, to a client, how to win business, or is it all kind of case by case? Is every, is it just, is it more about just you hiring great people and them doing their own thing? And then just understanding the, the culture of your business, understanding what kind of clients that you want to target the audience, all that, or, or is there a specific sales process in terms of how you won some of these big brands that yes. you've, that you're working with, you know? 
I think to make it simple, you can break this into three parts, three primary parts. I mean, if you look at it and you can visualize this in your head, it looks like an upside down triangle, right? It's a funnel. It's wide at the top and very narrow at the bottom. So the first part is getting the opportunity to talk to clients. And this is through sales, through marketing, through social media, so that people get to know about who you are. This could be both both passive and active. You can put out content and hope that they come to you. That's called right. inbound marketing. And you could do outbound, which is directly pick up the phone and cold call people and shoot them an email, send them a demo reel, send them a self-promotional item, something like that. Mm -hmm. That would lead you to phase two. So of this very wide top of the funnel would lead you to the people who are potentially interested in you. And it narrows really fast, if you can imagine that. So if you reach out to, say, 200 or 1,000 people, you might have 50 or 20 qualified leads, of which only a few you can book. So it's very important for you to have a really wide top of the funnel awareness. And then once you get them engaged, so they, they see something that you do, it connects with what they want to do. And so they reach out, they shoot you an email, they might call your office. And so this begins the sales part of it. The first part was marketing, now we're doing the sales. And we definitely have a process. It's not everything's a free for all. I wonder what the clients are gonna say. We do have a very specific process. Right. And through doing business for 23 years and having been coached for 10 of those years, you learn what the questions are, the rules of engagement, what they're looking for by learning how to ask really specific questions and how to conduct yourself. So the problem that you learn is this, is that we have uh, happy ears. We listen and hear only for the things we want to hear. So the client says to you, I really think we need to stick pretty close to the, to the original campaign. What you hear is, hey, do something new and innovative, fresh that we've never seen before. And that friction that exists between what you think you they want and what they really want, what they said. So your subjective anticipation and the objective reality of what they're asking for is usually where most creatives self-sabotage. Mm. Okay. So now you go through this process and you learn through many iterations, through failure or through coaching or by watching other people do it. You had a great mentor. Now you learn how to bring the client in. And so now the client's interested, you're submitting your bid and they, through some mysterious ways of deciding, it could be a factor of personality, charisma, creativity, and price, or all those combined. And then they decide, we want to award the job to firm A, B, C, or D. And if you're the one that learns how to play this game really well, your close ratio goes up. I've always felt that if there are four people bidding on the project, you have a one in four chance. And don't be delusional. It's just a numbers game. So if you can win more consistently than the number of participants in the competitive process, you're doing really well for yourself. So before I hired our business coach, we were winning approximately 20% of the projects that were $200,000 or more. Once I hired the business coach, I started to learn how to conduct myself, the rules of engagement, things I mentioned before. We started to close at 50, 60%. That means that half the time, flip a coin, we're going to win the job. We can't always determine which half. We hope it's the higher half and not the lower half budget. But that's where we refine the game. And I start to teach the team and my salespeople, this is how you close the job. The right. last part, the third part is actually the management of the client, the onboarding, the mm -hmm. distribution of the project, the creative brief, and doing a great creative job. Because if you don't deliver at the end of the day, part one and part two won't really matter very much. Yeah, no, that, that's right. Yeah, that's it's pretty similar how we conducted it at our company as well. I, I think, well, uh, I mean, I, I from 
what I've understood or um, what I've experienced is it's it's always difficult to generate all those leads. I mean, we get a lot of our leads from from Google. Most of our leads actually come from Google, from a lot of our SEO efforts. Um, not really much from social media, at least for my company. I found it more difficult to find leads from social media, but we also don't have a huge social media presence, nothing like like blind or the future. I mean, I, you, I mean, I, your content, man, gets amazing engagement. I, I'm, I'm a bit jealous. I'm just like, man, this guy's so good. Like he needs to give me some tips on how to get, uh, you know, all the, all this engagement because the way you brand yourself, it's connected to your company. So when they see you as a thought leader, right. See you, see this guy, Chris Doe as man, this guy knows his, this guy knows his stuff. He knows his, he's, he's an expert. They're going to come to you. Right. So you're probably getting a lot of leads from social, from Google, probably from many different funnels. Or are you guys also outreaching to a lot of businesses as well? Well, let me answer the question this way. As right. of the beginning of this year, we stopped doing client work altogether. We're entirely in the content business now. So yep. excuse me, <clears throat> let me tell you how it used to work. <clears throat> so for a number of years, sorry, I was just choking them on saliva here. <laughs> so for a number of years, we have sales reps who do the hard work of shaking the trees, pounding the pavement, and always being in the face of the people who make the decisions to, to hire and to procure creative work, right? So they're right. out there doing their work. And then simultaneously, we are creating content. We're building up our website, building amazing case studies so that we're working at this from two ends of the spectrum. The outbound strategy was the reaching out, the cold calling, and the inbound, which is create enough content on all the different platforms so that the people who are in the position who are looking for you right now, make it easy for them to find you and to establish some kind of credibility once they find you. And that's the key. So through the combined efforts of my own speaking and, and public kind of persona or visibility combined with the sales effort, that should be the double-pronged approach to getting work. Now, as we transition from being a service, creative services company to a content and, and productized uh, company or product company, it's very different. We create a lot of content on YouTube. We write things on Medium, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. And through that, we stay in touch with people and then they reach out and ask us to help them on their projects and to consult on their projects. Now, since we're not doing much of that work anymore anyways, it's not really uh, our, our mission anymore. So what we do with those job leads is we just refer them out to other people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you're probably so booked, right, with with client work that there's there's no point of of taking on more work, right? Because then you got to scale it more, hire more people, right? Yeah, if that were the case, actually, we're not even doing any client work anymore. It's all oh, wow. Yeah. So we okay. we have walked away literally from six hundred and fifty thousand dollars from new client work from very high profile clients, and it's wow. just not for us anymore. That's crazy. So so when you say product work, what do you mean by that? Well, the way that we sustain ourselves, I mean, we produce a lot of videos on YouTube, over eight hundred videos now, and the way we make money is through a number of different things. I'm going to lay out for you all the ways we make some, make money. So in case something hits one, your audience, they can say, oh, I could do that too. The primary way that we make money is we sell digital books like uh, PDFs of ideas, templates, forms, uh, things that we've used as business tools to help people. One, one example of that is the perfect proposal. So Ben has authored and written a template and a keynote template on how to write a proposal so that you can close more jobs, so you can look more credible and ask for more money. The other way that we make money is through courses. So we have a combination of self-study and video-based courses that people buy. 
And, and okay. that's the bulk of how we make money. We have people who voluntarily give us money. We call them sustaining members. And they donate anything from $5 to $25 a month, sometimes even more. Now, some people want to engage in my group coaching uh, uh, Facebook group, which is $150 a month. And I have 270 people in that group. Some people hire me as a coach for $1,000 an hour for an hour at a time. And we also have corporate sponsors who want to do content with us and pay us to make content together. And then we have a number of affiliates where we help sell other people's products and they pay us a percentage. It could be anywhere between 15% up to 50%. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> you, you've gotten it to such a great level. It's, you know, you don't even have to uh, go through that client grind anymore. You know, the no more grind. Uh, yeah, 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 it's it's so hard, man, because you know the clients have such high expectations and deadlines, and it's it's a very stressful uh, stressful business. I mean, that's what we're in right now with uh, with building apps. It's always de tight deadlines and um, sometimes uh, unrealistic uh, expectations um, that that the client wants to set um, that we feel we can't deliver. It's just it's it's hard because I, I definitely know that game. I know. Um, I'm really happy for you that you've gotten to that point where you can get paid for your consulting and you have the future making you money and you probably have the podcast. Are you monetizing the po your podcast as well? Uh, not too much. We, we, we mostly release content without monetizing it, hoping that mm -hmm. what people do is they have a sense of obligation and reciprocity where they receive a tremendous amount of value. So when they think about buying a product or course, they're happy to give us their money. And many people do do that. And I forgot to mention, we're also running workshops and boot camps now. So we're, we're transitioning from a service, creative services company, fully to an education product company. That's great. And just kind of going back, rewinding a little bit in, in regards to um, dealing with the larger brands that you deal with, uh, Chris, or you dealt with before, you know, in your design and consultancy agency, you know, being in a saturated space or when you were in the, in the service-based business, what did it take what did it really take for you to win over the larger brands? There's a very simple idea that everybody can apply. It's called trading up. Okay. So everybody wants to work with Nike or Xbox mm -hmm. or some giant corporation. Yep. And you just set your sight on that. And what happens is at that level, they have anybody that they can pick from in the entire world at any point in time, and they can hire them. So what you need to do is you need to just trade up. So you're going to do something for maybe a local sporting goods store. Maybe they have a small chain. Maybe there are like 12 stores and you do some work for them. And through that, you get access and create some credibility in the sports market. And then you work for a third or fourth tier brand. Maybe it's like Asics or something or Skechers or one of those other brands and you do work for them or one of their supply companies and you just keep trading up. You keep trading up. There's a, a fairly famous art experiment where somebody trades a dollar all the way on up to buying a house. They keep trading the dollar for this and then they take whatever they're able to trade that for and they keep trading it up and so they get bigger and bigger. So it becomes a, a canoe or a motorcycle and then it becomes a car and the car becomes two cars, a, a van, a camper van, and then becomes a house. You just keep trading up. So you all can take those little steps towards getting to the bigger clients. Now, let me put it in very practical terms. So in the very beginning, we wanted to make commercials. That's what we did, right? So the first kind of commercials that we can get are very low budget. They tend to be public service announcements, PSAs, and they have the budget of, oh, I don't know, 500 or $1,000. It's not a lot of money and it's a lot of work. So you do that and that gets somebody's attention. 
And then you might be able to work on some local regional spots, TV spots where you animate some type. And then that becomes part of a national campaign. And then you keep trading up. And that's what happened. Now, for us, we traded up really fast. So we went from a PSA in our first year to doing a car commercial for Buick, I think, in year two, to doing Mitsubishi Motors in year three. And then we went national and then international in year three and a half. So it, just, it seems like it's just kind of building up. Once you build your credibility, you, you get in with a smaller tier brand, right? And then what happens is you start to get that experience, get your name out there, and then the larger brands start to notice that you've worked with some of these other um, industry similar brands as well, right? That's right. Yeah, makes sense. Mm -hmm. so it's kind of a... Yeah, it's just a, it just takes takes a lot of time and patience to get in there. It's you're not just gonna. Um, I, I it seems like a lot of people, at least that I've met, they try to get in with the larger brands without having worked in that industry vertical before. You know, so the, a lot of these brands they want you to have that experience within their um, within their market. Yeah, you can you can do it. Some people are able to do it because they're really great at self promotion. They've got that that. X factor, they're very charismatic and they just burst on the scene and they just jump straight to the top. But mm -hmm. for the rest of us mere mortals, you got to just grind your way up. And just remember every, every, it's like a snowball. It starts very small as a snowflake at the beginning and it winds up as being a gigantic avalanche at the bottom, right? So that's what you want to do. When did you start to see your company really boom? Was it after a certain amount of years? Was it like after that? Because you always hear after 10 years, it takes, from what I've heard, it said, they say it takes eight to 10 years to really build the foundation, a strong foundation of a company. What, what did it take for you guys to do that? I think the key to our growth and success back in the mid to late 90s was to be able to hire a credible sales rep. By having a sales rep, a sales agent working on your behalf, to procure work opportunities for you made a big difference. Here's the catch 22. Sales reps, they want somebody who's easy to sell. Somebody who's easy to sell means they're already in demand. They're very popular. They have a body of work that people want to hire. They naturally, and it is human to want this, to do the little, the least amount of work to get the maximum results. So when you're a student mm -hmm. starting out, you have no real credible work on your reel. Nobody knows about you, so it's a struggle. They won't represent you unless you can get work. Well, to get work, you need representation. So this is the key. So for us, it was once we started doing some high-profile work for Mitsubishi Motors, I was able to get a rep. Prior to that, I called six reps. They all turned me down immediately. <laughs> so that was the key. Once you got a sales rep, they can go out there and they can go and do the hustle that designers and creatives aren't really good at doing. Right, right. And is was that the time in your agency when you really found your true worth and value? Like when did you really in your career in general, when did you really find your your worth, Chris, and your value? Well, can, what point in time? Can you narrow down that question? When you say worth and value, what does that mean to you? What what that means to me is for the way I would, I would, in terms of my like worth and value in terms of my company. So the way, the way other people would view us, how credible we are, what are we worth? Are we worth a certain, you know, cause I, I did see some of your content on value-based pricing, which I love. And I'm going to ask that question in, in a few minutes, but in regards to value, just like, what are we worth in the market? Are we, are we one of the best, um, you know, agencies in the market? Do they see us that way? Do we portray ourselves that way? That's kind of I what see. I mean. Okay. Yeah. So the value and the worth is relative to maybe who you compete against. 
And that's a pretty clear indication. So if you're competing against companies within a 30 mile radius, well, you may be top of the city. You might want to be top of the state or the country or in the world. So I know from the very beginning, actually, uh, because the market that we were in was underserved, meaning there was great demand for the work, but not enough people who are credible at doing it, meant that we were competing against what I would consider the top 10 firms in the world at any given time almost immediately. So I would say about two two or so years into do, running blind, we were competing against these behemoths. We're two and a half people competing against 50 people at another design firm or 100 people. So... Mm-hmm. Now, that's good because that means you're being considered and thought of in the same conversation. But it also meant we lost a lot because their their small team is bigger than our whole company. <laughs> and it, it felt very demoralizing because we'd go up against them and we would lose. I mistakenly thought at that time that it was our creativity that wasn't helping us. That means that they had superior creative. But it really wasn't about that at all. It was really about learning to ask questions, understand what the problems and the challenges were, and then solving that. Prior to that, I was listening, sort of, and then I was just going back to the studio and creating whatever I wanted to create. And so there was a misalignment between the work that I produced and what they wanted to see. I totally misunderstood, and I didn't understand that because I never learned how to do that in school. I see. I see. Hmm. Okay. No, that makes sense. And in regards to, you know, pricing, I, I know you have some awesome content on this. You know, I really love it. Specifically value-based pricing. And I know many companies and people struggle with this concept. Can you explain that in more detail? I know you have a video on it as well. Okay. So there's three key words that people need to understand and the definition of them and how they're, they may be using these terms interchangeably, but they're very different concepts. That is cost, price, and value. Cost is what it takes to make something. That's the raw materials, the labor, the overhead, the insurance on the building, all that kind of stuff. And then price is what a customer agrees to pay a manufacturer. Okay. And the price is determined by the cost plus profit margin. And that number, the profit margin, can be totally arbitrary. Some companies set the profit margin very tight while some set it at a very wide range. The best way to look at this is to look at shoe companies, okay? Because we can go to a discount shoe company and buy a pair of sneakers for, say, $20. And that means that somebody still made at least $10 profit on the on the uh, the sale of the, of the shoe. But then you can go to, say, Nike and get limited edition Jordans or Yeezy Boost and pay three $400 for a limited edition. The raw material, mm-hmm. the cost to make it is pretty much the same. But the price which is set to the customer and they agree to pay for it is because they see something else in there. Value, unlike cost and price, is what benefit the customer sees when they purchase it. So when they buy a pair of Yeezys, it's debatable whether or not they look good at all. But they feel like they are able to get something very exclusive that only a few human beings can have. That makes them feel more special and good inside. So they're willing to pay in excess of what it costs to make. So this is the beginning of understanding value-based pricing. So there's cost, there's price, and there's value. And value is determined by the individual and cannot be set. Except for from the person who's making the decision to buy something. 
I see. So you don't think the uh, the hourly based model works? I mean, we used to honestly, Chris, we used to do that. Mm-hmm. We used to do the hourly model, and I, I'm sure you know a lot of other design agencies and, and technology companies. They'll say, "Oh, oh it's a you know 150 an hour, 200 dollars an hour," but it's it, honestly it's really hard to do that uh, because first of all, the client will want a record of all the hours that have been used so far. Right. So it's, there's so much account, there's so much time spent on accountability on the hours. Right. And it's, it kind of, then they start to question, uh, they start to question the trust between, between, you know, in the relationship, whether the hours were worth the work, you see what I'm saying? So I love your model. My team actually, uh, watched that video and I, and I'm being honest with you, it really helped our, my company imagine innovation so much, man, because, it, it shows we're able to to um, show the co- show the clients now what they're actually going to be getting. There's more value in the conversation than than, than just saying, "Hey, this is going to be two thousand hours." Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So there's three ways to determine price. Okay, there's three ways to determine price, and the price remember right. not what it costs. The first way is to price on inputs, being whatever it is you put into it. it's hourly. And then mm-hmm. and this is okay. There's nothing wrong with this. If you do this today, don't worry about it. It's fine because there are very successful companies that do hourly based pricing. I know a few myself, but yep. the risk is put onto the client because <clears throat> if you spend a ton of hours working on something, they owe you a lot of money. So of course they're going to be watching how you spend your time like a hawk. Yes. They might yep. say, well, for that task, uh, a, it should have only taken 40 hours by our estimate, but it took you 200. What happened? And so now you have to time track and you have to explain because the risk is on them. At some point, the clients get fed up. They're like, you know what? We don't want to do hourly-based pricing. We want you to price based on output. So we want you to build a working prototype and a minimum viable product. And it has the deliverables, deliverables, right? The output. So we want you to price it based on that. Now, you as the freelance or independent business owner, say you say to yourself, well, there's a lot of ways this can go sideways. There can be scope creep on this thing. We got to cover our butt. So whatever we think it's going to take, let's just say 100 hours, we might pad this to 200 hours or 180 or 130. That's entirely up to you. Because now you assume the risk. So if you estimate poorly, you will go out of business. If you estimate really well and you run your ship really tightly, you can actually make a decent amount of profit. The last way you can do this is the price based on outcome, not output, but outcome. What is the outcome that they want? So this makes you to uh, makes you engage with the client in a very different way than you previously did. Prior to that, you might sit down and talk about scope, features and functions that you want to have in an app. But now if you focus on outcome, well, what does this app do for your business? They might say, well, having this app will cut our customer service time down by half. And you say, well, what is that worth? They're like, well, we employ 100 customer service reps. By cutting that down, you're going to save us $14 million a year. Okay, so what is it worth to you then? What's a fair price now? Now so we determine the value of yep. saving you $14 million a year. Would $1.4 million seem reasonable to you? That's only 10% of that cost. They're like, well, yeah, if you can literally save us this, and this is what we want to do, 1.4 million seems very reasonable because we will have a net gain of something like $12.6 million. I see. 
So it's really all about asking the right questions as well. That's probably one of the most important parts. Yes, you're seeing a recurring theme here, right? So it took mm -hmm. me 10 years. It didn't take me 10 years, but it, it took 10 years of coaching for me to learn all that I know about how to ask the right kinds of questions and how businesses actually conduct themselves so that I'm now thinking like a business person, not like a creative. Right. No, that's awesome, man. I love it. Yeah, it definitely has helped our business a lot. It's just the value-based model, at least. I, I think, I mean, I, I agree that the hourly it can be good, but there's just so much paperwork that goes with it and and looking at reviewing all the hours and it, it's such a headache. I think it's it should be more based on deliverables, which is value because you're giving them something. So output and outcome as well asking the, the right return on investment questions, right? What kind of return they're going to be getting or or how is this going to help their business and put, putting that to a dollar value. Yeah. Right. So let's examine yep. for a minute motivations. Okay. If you base your pricing on hour, what do you care about? What are your, what are your functions? Well, I care about tracking the time and probably <laughs> trying to get as high of a bill as possible because if you come up with an, an amazing idea, the time that it took you to, to come up with that idea, the billable hour could only be 15 minutes. So the way people get around this is they charge a very high hourly rate. A great example of this are attorneys. So attorneys can be anywhere between a couple hundred dollars an hour to a thousand dollars an hour. So the high yeah. profile attorneys rack up ginormous bills. They have associates, junior associates, clerks and assistants and all these kinds of things. So they can jam a lot of hours on you. They're the probably the most efficient group of people who understand how to bill hourly. But it's a drag because you're you're gonna track how many copies you made on the photocopier. You're gonna track <clears throat> uh, every every call in 15 minute increments. So that's where your energy is. So your your focus is really on where my time is going. Now, the next one is based on output or deliverables, right? So now what you're doing is you're just really focused on the thing that I make. What does that look like? Does it function? So none of these two really address the bigger issues. Why does a client even want to spend money making this? So when you focus on outcome, now my focus is really tell me what your, your goal is and then I will do everything in my power to help achieve that goal. I don't care about the time. I don't care about the deliverable. What I care about are the results. Yeah, I see. No, I, I definitely can. I definitely can see the value in, in just asking those questions. I mean, when you're asking me that, I was thinking, yeah, I, I could definitely see how how clients would find that valuable in the pitch in the meeting during the sales meetings. You know, um, I think that's great. So, Chris, an, another pricing question is, uh, you know, and I love your take on it. How do you respond to the lower budget clients? You know, we all have gone through the the ones that that they say that you know, I don't know what my budget is, or you know, they was they'll say that, or they'll say something like, Hey, it's, it's this amount, but you know, it's more, how do you kind of respond to that? <laughs> right. So when people don't know their budget, it's one of two things. One is they're an uninformed buyer. It means they have no idea what any of this stuff costs. And they have probably not allotted a lot of money to the, the, the to the initiative and effort that are about to undertake or two, they're playing a negotiation game with you because we've all been taught whoever says the price first loses. So they think if they say we have twenty thousand dollars to do this, then you start negotiating up. Well, I think we do for twenty-seven. That's why they don't say anything because in their hope of hopes, right? They're thinking you're going to say something way below twenty thousand. So they're thinking you're an inexperienced person. You walk into the door, little wet behind the ear, and you say, "Well, I think we can do this for two thousand bucks. Is that okay?" And they're like, "Uh, yeah, let's do it." 
they saved themselves $18,000. But when you read enough about how bias works, right? There, there is this this bias that when we hear one piece of information, it's part of heuristics, heuristics, right? The first piece of information we hear seems to influence a lot more than we'd like to admit. So in in this case, if you say the number first and you anchor really high, it's called the anchor bias. They're going to get fixated with that number. Notice in the value based conversation that I just demoed with you, I said, well. How, what's this going to do? Well, we have 100 customer service reps. And if we're able to chop their time in half, how much money will we save? They say $14 million. Okay, so that was the number that was dropped in your head. So when I said $1.4 million, which is for a 10% of 14 million, that sounds like a really reasonable number against 14 million. But if you started out not saying anything and you started out with, I think we should charge you $1 million, like get out of town. We're thinking this is a $130,000 initiative. Yeah, You see, so it helps you to establish the number first and to anchor really high. According to Blair Ends, there is no penalty for anchoring too high. There's no penalty whatsoever. So when you talk to a client and you say, um, do you have a budget set? And they're going to say no, almost always. Like 90% of the time, they're going to just say no. Yeah. We have no idea, <laughs> right? And you're going to say, well, based on our very brief conversation, it's probably going to be somewhere north of $180,000. Do you have that kind of money to spend? So before they might be thinking in their mind 30,000, but now you just anchor at 180,000 and it's a high number for them. And they're sitting there thinking about it. It's like, I don't know, Michael, uh, maybe we have 120 because they don't want to be embarrassed. And you're thinking I would have settled for 80 in your mind. Just by saying the number and saying it high, you do a giant favor for yourself and for your business and your bottom line. And there's definitely a potential with saying something too high, right? And losing them. No. Do you feel or no? No, no. there isn't. I mean, they might laugh and say, Oh my God, we don't, <laughs> there's no way we have $400. You're like, you know what? You don't want that kind of client. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I even find giving them a range. If you say, Oh, it's between 75 to 200,000. They're obviously going to go for the bottom one. Right. right? So just say that number in the reverse order. Say, I see. So we say they range from two hundred thousand to maybe seventy-five thousand. You'll see what happens. Yeah. Just reverse. No, I like order. that. That's cool. I've I've never done that before. I know it sounds <laughs> weird because we're used to saying the lower to the higher, but say yes. the higher to the lower. Just get used to saying it over and over again. I will I'll definitely take that advice. I'm sure many people listening to this are going to take that as well. And that's great advice, Chris. Um, and what what about the clients that you feel? I mean, how do you respond to the clients that say that you're too expensive? Same thing, same approach. Okay, so if they say you're too expensive. Uh, say why do you say that? And what would they say? Some will say. Oh, well, you know, you, so your competitor is charged. If we, if we say 150, they say, oh, but we're getting quotes from your competitors at, you know, 50 to 70, 75,000. You guys are more than twice, okay. twice higher. So there's two yeah. approaches here. You can then respond. What do you think you're not getting at 50? What do you think we bring to the table at 75 more than those guys? What would they say then? So let's pick one of the two paths. Let's say, what do you think you're not getting for the $50,000 budget? Yeah, I see what you're saying. So, so really, you're tr trying to, if if 
if I ask them that question, they would say, oh, well, I mean, they probably wouldn't know how to respond. Well, let's they, try. But right. that- Be empathetic. Okay. Imagine that you're the client. Yep. You've talked to clients now for over eight years. So mm-hmm. what would they say? Say to that. They would most likely say, oh, well, you know, aside from the competition, they would say, well, I mean, you guys are really high, so we don't know if we can afford that. This is what we've gotten. We don't know if we can afford 200,000. Why do you, why do you, why are you guys charging that high? And then we would say something like, no, no, no. I want you to to be the client right now. And I'm going to, I've literally thrown the question back at you. Let's say I told you 125K. You're like, wow, that's really high, Chris, because the, uh, your other competitor is asking for 50. And I'm going to say back to you, what do you think you're not getting for 50? What's holding you back from going with the $50,000 vendor? It would be hard to answer. Well, it. try. Try your best to answer. You see what I'm doing to you right now? Yeah. Yeah. Try. No, no, I see. I already know the answer, but I want to know how well you know your customers. Um, it would probably, I'll probably say that. Well, the scope of work doesn't really fit that amount of money because we've gotten the answer before. They'll say, and then we'll say, well, how do you know that the scope of work doesn't fit that, that, that estimate? I I don't. Let's just say that apples to apples, you gave us both the same scope of work and the documents coming back, but you see two totally different numbers. You see one at 50 and you see one at 125. If you believe, if you have confidence that the Mm $50,000 option is the way to go, let's save us both a lot of time and energy and get off the phone right now. Work with them. See what happens. Yeah, I see. Yeah, because the thing is, is like we'll vet. I mean, uh, my company will vet them and we'll, well, part of the vetting process is, is a budget question, right? So we'll throw, cause we know a lot of them are not going to give us an, a number until they, so what for, I'll give you an example, Chris. So one, we had one lead, um, you know, a few months ago that this happened and they said this, we said, well, what's your, what's your budget? And they said, well, we don't, we don't have one. So we said, okay. And I, I gave you the range. I said, well, it's uh, 75 to 150,000. And they said, well, um, actually my budget is, is a, I really don't want to spend more than 60,000. Right. All of a sudden they gave me a number and I'm like, in my head, I'm like, well, you said you didn't have a budget. It always <laughs> happens that way. Always. Yeah. So really should have reversed it. And I'm curious to see what happens. Yeah. Try to see what happens. And, and you yeah. can even just say one number projects like this tend to be around $125,000. Is that what you have to spend? And then what you will see them do is if that imagine a sixty thousand dollars you're going to say they'll probably bump it to eighty five or ninety. It's yeah. human nature. No, you'll right. see what happens. Okay, we're just drawn is, yep. towards the first piece of information that we hear. Now let's get back to the conversation here because you had asked me how do you respond to you're too expensive. I just told you, but for some reason you're not willing to engage with me on that one because typically what happens is when you say back to the client. There's only a few options I could say, like, why don't, what do you think you're missing out on by going with a $50,000 vendor? So this plays into their fears. We know this, okay? So when you go to get um, like a, a shampoo or a soap or a toothpaste, and there's one for like 25 cents and every other one is $4, what do you think is wrong with the 25 cent one? We know it's old, it's outdated. There must be something, there's a recall. It's not as effective. So they get an opportunity to convince themselves that that's a bad option. All I did was create the question and give them space to figure it out. Now, should they say, we love that option, they're lying to themselves because when you hear a great deal and you have a great vibe, 
going on with the company and they're giving you a price that you can afford, why do you keep talking to people? <clears throat> You're insane. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's a waste it's a waste of time. And let me let me put in very excuse me. <laughs> let me put in very practical terms for you, okay? <clears throat> I lose my voice here. <laughs> is there are people who submit their demo reel to us for review. I see two minutes of it. I'm like, hire them. I don't need to see the rest because I know what I want. So when they say we have another person who's willing to do it for a third of your price, that's a bargaining tool. That's a negotiation ploy, pure and simple. They want yeah. the quality of the work that you're doing, the vibe that you put out, your reputation. They just want it at the other price. And it's because they're better negotiators than you that they use this trick and you fall for it. Because if right. they got what and, they wanted, they would have just hung up the phone already. Yeah, true. And they even they'll even do it uh, in you know in the office as well when they come in and, and meet with us. And what 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 we've done in the past to win some of the big business, I mean, my experience is that that same thing has happened. And then we'll come in with confidence, like you mentioned before, and we'll tell them the actual value. We'll say, well, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get this, 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 and they're they're all of a sudden seeing. Okay, I see. There's security involved. We have a security aspect of our business. Yeah. Have, have has anyone else, um, you know, added that value? Oh, okay. It's custom designs, not template. Right, right. Okay, but you're, you're, I see. You're, I see. You're doing something that yeah. most creative people do. You start to justify your value, and that's the mistake. Mm -hmm. Do do right. not do that. I want them to tell me why, because you saying it's just a pitch. You're just selling them. They're like, oh yeah, yeah. here comes the pitch. I can see it coming. They're going to drop 25 things that they do better than everybody else. But I don't believe it. But just sim simply asking them, what do you think is the difference between a $50,000 option and hundred? They're like, well, you're more qualified. You do all this extra work. And I see that your, your track record is sparkling. Instead of you saying it, they say it. This is why I say this on the show. When, when you say it, you're selling. And when they say it, you're closing. So stop selling. Almost every question that is thrown at you respond with another question. I see. So you're kind of putting the weight on them to answer for you. Yeah, because I want to know what they believe. Yeah. And then I'm going to ask them more questions. Right. Now, have you ever gone to therapy, Michael? Uh, no, I okay, haven't. Okay, you need to purely out of research. Right. I want you to go and find yourself a good family therapist or a cognitive behavioral therapist, some something like that, okay? It's about $100 an hour. Some are less, some are a little bit more, but it's usually about 100 bucks an hour. It'll be the best teacher that you can have as a business owner. Because what happens is when you go to see a therapist, watch how they diagnose the problem. Watch how they navigate a very complex minefield called your head. How do they get you to agree to do things that you didn't agree to prior to them even asking the question? Watch how much you do talking versus them doing the talking. Watch how many questions they ask you versus how many things they tell you to do. You will see. And once you realize that, you will realize you've been doing it all wrong. I actually, um, I've had some friends that, uh, some business, some friends in business that have uh, talked to therapists, not because there was something wrong with them, but just to get it out of experience. And they said it was very beneficial. So maybe I'll try that. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a misconception that by asking yeah. for help, we must be broken. If you go and, and ask help for a tennis coach, it's to improve your game. If you're a chess champion and you want coaching, it's to improve your game. Nothing wrong with you. It's just to improve your game. They can spot little tweaks and adjustments that you can make to improve your game. And there is a negative stigma to therapy because I must be mentally unstable. I must have emotional issues, mommy issues, daddy issues. 
It's not a, that at all. You want clarity yeah. on your thinking. To resist it is insane. No, it makes complete sense. It definitely makes sense. And I think a lot of people can learn from that as well. Uh, it's great advice, Chris. Appreciate that. So Chris, you know, last three questions, um, you know, close, close out the episode is how do you, so I always ask this for every interviewee, I call it the three hows. So how do you overcome obstacles? How do you create value and how do you define success? So first one's how do you overcome obstacles? What you need to do is understand the obstacle. An obstacle usually is something that's a reflection of you and your belief system, right? And it usually boils down to fear. You're afraid of something. So if your obstacle is I'm, I'm unwilling to, to call 10 clients on a cold call this week, it's because you're afraid of them saying no. You're afraid of sounding stupid. Once you're able to address that, you can overcome your fear. So ask yourself some questions like what's holding you back from doing this? And then try to identify why you're, you're not doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's the next question? And how do you create value? You create value by ser- providing a service to other people in a generous manner where you take yourself out of the equation and you really sit there and think, how can I become an advocate for this person's business? I'm in it for them and not for me. <clears throat> I'm in it for them and not for me. Kind of like this uh, selfless approach. 100%. If you read This is Marketing, yep. Seth Godin says, marketing is the generous act of helping others achieve their goals, period. Love it. Love it. And last question is, how do you define success? Success is when you realize all of who you are, all your strengths, your skills, your passion, your your interests, and also the parts that you don't like about yourself, and you become completely happy with both. Perfect, man. Yeah, it's a great way to close it out. Really appreciate it, Chris. And, uh, and where can everyone find you, Chris? You can, website, social media. Yeah, you can find us on YouTube, and that's where our biggest uh, content dump is. It, we have over 800 videos. You can find us at The Future Is Here, and The Future spelled without an E. Just remember, drop the ego, and that's how you can spell The Future. And you can also find me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and everywhere else at V Chris, C H R I S D O D O, at V Chris Do. Awesome, man. Chris, it's been an honor and, and really humble to, to have you on the show and sharing your story and insight uh, with us. And I'm, I'm very thankful, man. Really, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Michael. I had a blast. Awesome, man. Cool. Well, again, thanks everyone for listening. And this is your host, Michael Giorgio on Tales from the Pros. And until next time, thanks guys.